back to Peace in Their Time, episode 40, Into the Balkans We Go. Since we left off last week detailing the woes that Hungary suffered, I figured I might as well pick back up with one of the main benefactors of their misfortunes. The history of Romania in this period followed a similar pattern to, say, Yugoslavia's in some respects. It was a former Turkish possession, and it secured through force of arms a much larger territorial base than it started with. But whereas the Serbs had to reconcile its constituent ethnic groups to a new kingdom, or at least put on the appearance of doing so, Romania was more akin to Poland in that a true ethnic majority governed over smaller groups that found themselves within the new borders. And with their doubled size and population after World War I, Romania was heavily sought after as a friend by France, and by the latter 30s, Germany as well. However, like Poland, it was also surrounded on several sides by hostile neighbors as a result of their past aggressions. Romania's quest to both take and then retain their prizes would dominate its politics for most of its history up to the end of World War II. This was especially true in regards to its relationship with Hungary. Ironically, during World War II, the Hungarians and Romanians would find themselves extremely reluctant allies as part of the Axis. But even then, they considered each other enemies and sought to impress Adolf Hitler in hopes he'd support one over the other. But that's all for future episodes, as during the 20s, Hungary could only dream of getting some of its land back, while the Romanians focused on keeping what they gained. And oh, what they had gained. But that success came at the cost of making enemies. And last episode, I promised I would start explaining the Balkan grudges as we head into south-central Europe. This means I have to go back further than I normally would. But I promise, it's useful context for why all these nations were just so hostile to each other during World War II. So, get ready, we have some overviewing to do. Before World War I, Romania consisted of two combined principalities, Wallachia and Moldavia. They had been medieval entities, and both spoke the Latin-derived Romanian tongue, but were not united politically. They fell under Turkish vassalage during the early modern period, but each maintained a degree of internal autonomy. With the decline of the Ottoman Empire, their control over the Romanians started slipping, and with the backing of many of Europe's great powers, a Moldavian noble named Alexandru Ion Cusa secured his rule over both principalities, uniting them into Romania in 1862. He didn't enjoy his success long, and in 1866 he was forced from the throne he had so recently created by nobles that felt he was showing the peasants too much favor. To replace him, they sought a candidate that would plug them into the network of European royalty that connected so much of prosperous Western Europe together. So they imported a member from a branch of the Hohenzollern dynasty in Germany who was crowned as King Carol I. Now, while this suited the nobles and conservatives just fine, the people weren't entirely sold on a German prince, especially since most of the population, who had an opinion on such things, tended to favor closer ties to France. Just as a side note, the Romanians, right up until the dark days of 1940, were very pro-France. In the great struggle of European power politics, they respected the Germans and were willing to keep good relations, but France was perceived with genuine affection by the Romanians who drove foreign policy. Anyway, the peasantry was distrustful of their foreign king, 
and there would be disturbances here and there throughout his nearly five-decade reign. Which, I suppose, couldn't have been too bad, as you don't keep a throne that long without doing something right. The tension meant that the institution of the monarchy was never a truly secure one, which made sense. The reason the royals in the West were so secure was that they had centuries of leadership to their resumes and equally long policies of securing their country's power centers. Carroll couldn't just conjure that from thin air. An interesting idea that was floated in the years leading up to World War I was actually joining Romania to Austria-Hungary as a third kingdom. The idea behind it was that Romanian nationalists recognized a large number of their ethnic brethren, resided over the border in Transylvania, and they wanted to unite with them. However, glorious conquest was unlikely, and since Carol was only a Johnny-come-lately, why not cut a deal to unite Transylvania with Romania, and then Romania joined the larger empire as a third partner, the Austro-Hungarian-Romanian Empire? Carol would remain as a subordinate royal, much as the kings of Bavaria remained subordinate to the Kaiser over in Germany. The idea obviously didn't take off. The chaos of the Balkans and the outbreak of World War I prevented that. But it's a good indicator that for many Romanians, the monarchy wasn't the most essential of institutions. That all being said, Carol's leadership did help expand Romania during the pre-World War I days. He made beneficial alliances starting in 1887, when he joined the Russo-Turkish War on the side of the Russians. This normally obscure war is going to come up quite a lot in the next several episodes, as it's about the moment when Turkish dominance in the Balkans really snapped, and a bunch of Romania's neighbors joined in alongside Russia as well. This victory not only secured total independence from Romania's former master, it also scored them their modern Black Sea coastline. Then, in 1913, he joined Romania in the Second Balkan War as part of the coalition against its neighbor, Bulgaria. Romania had managed to avoid joining the much bloodier First Balkan War, and only joined the Second because it was everyone in the region versus a weakened Bulgaria, so it was basically a guaranteed win at little cost. They secured a place called Southern Dobrogea, a strip of land between the two nations in what is now Northeast Bulgaria. It appears wholly insignificant on a map, but is a fantastically fertile region and provided Bulgaria something like a fifth of all its crops. Its loss made the first enemy of many that Romania would have to deal with as the years ticked by. Carol and the Romanian state were less successful in developing Romania economically, though. Industrial development was slow to take root, and outside the most concentrated of urban centers like the capital Bucharest, living conditions were much as they had been for centuries. Romania was very much an agricultural country, admittedly a very productive one. Before World War I, it ranked fourth in grain exports worldwide, and that activity accounted for two-thirds of the country's GDP. There was one notable find, though, that would make Romania the object of great desire among the great powers. It's oil. Oil production in Europe was rather minor compared to what was found in North America, and the Azerbaijani lands in the Russian Empire. But Romania discovered a respectable amount all the same, which gave it access to a resource that was little found in the rest of the region. Unfortunately, it was just another resource, ripe for extraction and export to foreign markets, and its agricultural and resource wealth did not translate into general prosperity. 
Infrastructure development lagged behind, industries developed slowly and were not of the cutting-edge variety, and even the farming practices remained as they had been in the past, despite the advantages of mechanization. Most of the land was held by conservative nobles, who preferred to avoid reforms to keep their traditional powers intact. Education lagged as well, and politics were dominated by elites looking to preserve their privileges which as a result meant that while Romania ostensibly had democratic institutions, much of the populace was disenfranchised. And when Carroll finally died in 1914, just as the World War I hostilities were really kicking off, Romania found itself with some important decisions to make. The new king, Ferdinand, was the nephew of Carroll I, and like his uncle, a transplant, having previously lived in Germany before taking the throne. Despite his familial relations to the Kaiser and Germany, he respected the wishes of the Romanian leadership and kept the country neutral initially. But as the years ticked by, it appeared as if the central powers might be open to attack. Romanian nationalists desperately wanted to seize Transylvania and its majority Romanian population out from under the Austro-Hungarians, who themselves had already suffered greatly only partway through the war. When the Russians launched a series of brutal offensives in the summer of 1916, under the auspices of General Alexei Brusilov, it looked like the Austrians were doomed. In addition to that, the Entente had landed a multinational army in the Greek city of Salonika to the south. While Greece itself was still neutral, this little violation of sovereignty opened a new front against the Bulgarians, whom the Entente pledged to launch an offensive against if the Romanians were to join in. Accepting this, Romania entered the war in late August 1916. They had immediate success against the Austrians, as the Brusilov offensives had totally wrecked their armies and the borderlands were drained of defenses. There were two little problems with the situation, though. One was that by the start of September, the Russian attacks, which had been running since June, were out of gas. And while the Austrians were down, they weren't out, and the Germans were riding to their rescue. Their other problem was that the Entente army in Salonika made next to no headway against the Bulgarians, which allowed them to shuttle both their reserves and incoming Turkish troops northwards. The Romanians were now caught in a two-front war with troops enough for just the one. They desperately tried to hold off the attacks from the Bulgarians and the Turks, but when the Germans and Austrians made their own offensive, they couldn't hold. The army, government, and the king abandoned the southern part of the country, and fled to the northeast and set up around the city of Yashi, where proximity to the Russians meant they could presumably continue the fight alongside their only friendly neighbor. Meanwhile, the Central Powers helped themselves to a windfall of both crops and oil in the occupied parts of the country. The Romanians fought on, but in early 1918, when the Bolsheviks surrendered to the Central Powers, they found themselves alone in the east and decided to throw in the towel. By this time, the country had suffered a half million dead in a year and a half of fighting. The Treaty of Bucharest ceded territories to Austria and Bulgaria, while also leaving the nation at the mercies of the Central Powers for the rest of the war. Luckily for Romania, though, the fortunes of war were fickle as hell, and no sooner had the treaty been implemented than the Central Powers started falling apart. On November 10, 1918, the day before the German armistice was signed, Romania re-entered the war and started a scramble for the land it wanted. From my coverage on Hungary, you already know how things went in Transylvania, and Romanian troops got the payback they craved 
and more as their troops advanced on Budapest. Owing to the chaos in Hungary, new management was able to be set up in Transylvania unopposed. And at the Paris Peace Conference, Romania was ably represented by Ferdinand's wife, Queen Marie. It certainly didn't hurt that she had been the Entente's biggest booster in Romanian politics, and was the one who lobbied her husband to join the war in the first place, all of which endeared her greatly to the French. She was also well acquainted with the British leadership, as she herself was an English princess and a granddaughter of Victoria to boot. She was a forceful personality and took charge of the country's delegation over her male ministers, while at the same time sharing wit and sense of humor that endeared her to the Europeans. She found less success with the Americans, and Woodrow Wilson especially was put off by her, as well as the scale of Romanian territorial demands. His qualms were ultimately tabled, though, and Romania secured its new territory west of the Carpathian Mountains. There was also the matter of a place called Bessarabia, although that was not formally handled at the same peace conference. Bessarabia was a province of the fallen Russian Empire to the northeast of Romania, congruent with modern-day Moldova, plus the slice of Ukraine that juts between Moldova and the Black Sea. Romanian nationalists had always wanted that territory as well, but knew there was less chance of prying it away from the Russians than Transylvania from the Austrians. The fall of the Romanovs changed all that, and the region had broken away and declared independence. The Romanians took that as their cue and took over the region. Most of the major powers recognized the annexation, but notably the U.S. and Soviet Union did not. The Soviets very pointedly maintained a claim on the region, something they would act on down the road. Despite suffering defeat and disaster on the battlefield, Romania made out of World War I like a bandit. They had doubled the nation's size and vastly increased its national prestige, as it was now perceived as an important bulwark against Bolshevism by the French. There were new problems, though, problems very similar to their neighbors after their victories. The first was that the nation now had many minorities, which you should be used to hearing by now. By pushing outwards, they now had a community of Bulgarians in southern Dobruja, Ukrainians in Bessarabia, and Hungarians in Transylvania. There was also a German component, but since they were far from their ancestral homelands, these Romanian Germans were actually happy to cooperate with the central government, a welcome change of pace from such ethnic groups being a source of instability and pretexts for foreign interventions. While these new ethnic divisions never quite festered into the same problems that would cripple some of their neighbors, looking at you, Yugoslavia, it did create a lot of international grudges directed at them. The Romanians had to reckon with Bulgaria, Hungary, and the Soviet Union, all looking their way to get back what Romania had taken. To counter the first two, Romania entered into the Little Entente Alliance during the 20s with Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia. Together, the team was more than enough to handle the Hungarians and Bulgarians. The Soviets, though, represented a, shall we say, larger problem. So, in 1926, they turned towards Poland who themselves had spent the aftermath of World War I gorging on surrounding lands and alienating neighbors. Together they formed an alliance based on regional defense, and especially looked warily eastward. Given the options available, they made the best defense network they possibly could. At home, though, there was something to be desired in how they went about securing the newly enlarged kingdom. You would think that doubling your country's size and population would create a political shakeup, 
or at least changed power dynamics in the country. Well, it really didn't. The state was still dominated by the Valachian well-to-do, the landed nobles, and the king. Discrimination against Hungarians, old-fashioned anti-Semitism, and conservatism was still the order of the day. Unlike other areas of Central Europe, there really wasn't much of an attempt to even put on a show of liberalizing what democracy existed in the country. Even the introduction of universal male suffrage didn't change a whole lot, as much of the peasantry didn't believe the electoral process would relieve them of any burdens, which meant that they certainly organized to air their grievances, but their participation in electoral politics remained very low. An attempt was made to start handing out land to the millions of landless or small landholding peasants, but the giveaways were usually too small to give them an independent living, and came at a time when global food prices were crashing anyway. Despite being fairly calm during the 20s, the disparities of wealth and power was going to firmly set Romania down a path towards trouble in the future. Probably the most notable success in the period was in expanding the country's factory output, and though the new industries were in fact very basic ones such as textiles and steel, they did at least diversify the national economy, which was something at least. Downside, though, was that it didn't expand fast enough to keep pace with the accelerating population increases that the country enjoyed in the 20s. With not enough factories around to pick up the slack, that meant farms had to support more and more people. And with new sources of food from across the globe driving down prices, the farms were not bringing in the same pre-war incomes. This meant that the majority of the population became less secure, even before the Depression. And that's where I'll leave Romania for now. Victorious but vulnerable. Placid but with many troubles building up under the surface. Their experience during the 20s was more peaceful than others, but the inability to solve their domestic problems left them vulnerable to external pressures. This would build into increased social and political turmoil in the next decade, right at the time they could afford it the least. Look forward to palace intrigues, ideological clashes, and the looming threat of general war when we return here next season. All right, next on deck, we have the smallest of the Central European states, Albania. There isn't a whole lot that I can use to segue between them and Romania, but I have a little extra time, but not enough for next week's topic of Yugoslavia. In a podcast about explaining why the world fell into discord and eventually ruin, Albania really doesn't have that big a part to play. They legitimately didn't do anything to destabilize the world, and lacked the pull to do so even if they had wanted. They were, however, strategically located, not just bordering both Yugoslavia and Greece, but also sitting right across the Straits of Otranto from Italy. And since the Italians wanted to lock up the Adriatic for themselves and expand at the expense of Albania's neighbors, it was the perfect target for Mussolini's regime to act as its Balkan springboard. So I'm not going to linger too long here, but I'll give you the background so you know how they played into everything. Albania was a very new nation, only gaining its recognized independence after the 1913 First Balkan War. The area was also the most undeveloped in Europe, and politics were dominated by familial mountain tribes. An initial attempt to import a German prince as king did not go well, and he lasted a scant six months before tribal revolts and Greek invasion of the south 
forced him to hightail it back to Germany in September 1914. By that time, World War I was well underway, and while Albania maintained international neutrality while falling into a state of anarchy, the defeat of Serbia brought the war to its doorstep. The retreating Serbian army fled through Albania, heading for the southern coasts with the Austro-Hungarian army following behind it. The Albanians had nothing to offer in terms of resistance, so Italy made a landing in the south of Albania to prevent the Austrians from taking the whole country. An Italian-French force settled in, facing against the Austrians and Bulgarians for most of the rest of the conflict, before the latter pair's collapse allowed Italy to occupy the bulk of the country. Italy had expected to gain most of the coastline as part of its war demands, but like its claims elsewhere, they were revised down to nothing. Instead, Albania would be a fully self-governing and democratic nation. How the great powers expected that to actually happen, nobody knows. The country was impoverished, and the unstable government could only pay the bills by selling itself to foreign benefactors, especially Italy. Most of the nation was beyond the government's control in the capital of Tirana, and for years there was constant turnover in the national leadership. You know how in pretty much every country I've talked about so far that there's been some kind of rapid turnover in government? This was somehow way worse. Then you add on the propensity for blood feuds and assassinations, and you have an unholy mess. The notable figure in all this was a man named Ahmed Zagu. Born Ahmed Zagali, he came from a family of Muslim landholders and changed his name to Zagu as it sounded more modern. He had sided with the Austrians in World War I, but after bouncing around Austria and Italy in the post-war years, managed to return home and set himself up as Minister of the Interior, which was a post that gave him access to state resources, which he then used to join in the game of murder and oppression that so defined Albanian politics. As his influence increased, so too did his list of enemies, and eventually he and the government were overthrown by a peasant army raised by an Eastern Orthodox priest in June 1924. Zagu himself, though, managed to slip into exile and headed north into Yugoslavia. There, he was able to arrange the services of a small army of white Russians under one General Wrangel to take back Albania on his behalf. Wrangel, who had commanded an army against the Bolsheviks in southern Russia and the Crimea, was living in exile in the years after the Russian Civil War and was bouncing around the Balkans on behalf of the Yugoslavs. The Yugoslavs agreed to dispatch Wrangel in exchange for Zagu abandoning Albania's claims to Kosovo, a move that enraged the ethnic Albanians there, but was necessary for him as getting Albania proper under control was already impossible without foreign assistance. The army rolled into Tirana in the latter part of 1924, and Zagu was made president, although his powers were dictatorial by now. He started purging his enemies and pursued a campaign against brigands, especially in the north of the country where resistance to his regime was the strongest. He was a man always looking over his shoulder, rarely leaving the interior of his presidential palace for fear of assassination, which was an entirely well-founded fear, as he survived 55 attempts on his life, the worst of which was back in February 1924, when as Minister of the Interior he was shot twice. As president, his mother prepared all his meals, which were then placed in a locked container before being delivered to him. When he had to leave the palace, 
His mom was always in his company, as the blood feud rules held that you couldn't kill a man in the company of a woman. The violence wasn't confined to Albania either. Zagu's own brother was killed in a diplomatic mission to Prague, likely through the machinations of his own prime minister, who was on the payroll of the Italians and also trying to get Zagu to marry his daughter. Zagu responded by attempting to have the minister assassinated, both as revenge and to demonstrate to the Italians he wouldn't be intimidated. The attempt failed, though, and the minister fled and became yet another blood enemy of Zagu, which, given that he was subject to thereabouts of 600 such blood feuds, meant that it must have just been a Tuesday. Speaking of the Italians, Zagu pretty quickly started hitting them up for support after he gained the office of president, the unfortunate incident with the prime minister notwithstanding. The Yugoslavs were understandably not thrilled about this, but to maintain his independence, he needed to play his neighbors off against each other. Plus, the Italians were willing to throw around way more money to help him out. Already in 1924, they had taken control of Albania's banking system and transferred its highest operations to Rome. When in November 1926, the North again broke out in rebellion, Zagu didn't have the needed cash on hand to pay the army to put it down. Mussolini, though, was happy to gift him the cash in exchange for taking over Albania's foreign policy. Yes, Zagu sold his country's ability to conduct diplomacy in exchange for 20 million lira. A year later, in November 1927, Zagu had to go hat in hand again, and this time Mussolini took over the Albanian army. By this time, Italian officials were in control all across the country, and Zagu was a virtual puppet. His dignity was only partially assuaged when, in September 1928, he was allowed to do away with the fiction of being president and was elevated to King of Albania, changing his name yet again, this time to Zog I. Personally, I think Zog is the best one yet. These years were difficult ones for Albania. Zog had managed to only moderately reduce the anarchy in the countryside that made up the vast majority of the country, and even then, only through terrible repression and violence, which he was never able to let up. He had sold most of the functions of government over to the Italians, and while their investment flowed into the country, it was always going to be to their benefit and not the actual Albanians. British had been the sole great power to take a moderate interest in the nation's fate, but when the continued anarchy didn't look like it was going away, Austin Chamberlain washed his country's hands of Albania and left it to Mussolini to take care of, which left the nation to the tender mercies of the fascist leader, who saw it merely as a stepping stone to greater conquests in the region, as if the area didn't already have enough problems to deal with. But yeah, that's the unfortunate story of that little corner of Europe, and concludes our episode for this week. Next time, we've got a big one. Yugoslavia. Already a ticking time bomb at its inception, we're going to be looking back at what made it so uniquely doomed from the start. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 